played softball with this guy over Labor Day. He's one of those nice guys. Couldn't play and didn't bitch about being stuck in right field. What's wrong with right field? Always the first one to shake hands at the end of the game. Didn't matter whether he won or lost. Can't have an arm to play right field. Fought around at beers afterwards, even though he didn't drink. I played right field. Welcome to Discovering the X-Files, the podcast in which a newbie takes a deep dive into the entirety of Chris Carter's universe, while longtime fans escort me on the journey, a perilous journey filled with government conspiracies or weird monsters every other week. I'm Eric's Antoine, and today, Daniel and I will be discussing Blood. Not actual Blood, but the X-Files episode, Blood which originally aired in the U.S. on September 30th, 1994. It was written by Glenn Morgan and James Wong from a story by Darren Morgan and directed by David Nutter. In this episode, Mulder and Scully investigate a series of odd mass killings in Franklin, Pennsylvania. It seems people are being compelled to commit murder after seeing violent subliminal messages on electronic devices. It's a tight paranoia thriller, which features guest appearances by William Sanderson and porn star Ashlyn Gear. After the break, Daniel and I will be getting into it. Stick around. Things like this aren't supposed to happen here. A 42-year-old real estate agent murders four strangers with his bare hands? That's not supposed to happen anyway. Since colonial times, there's only been three murders in this area. In the last six months, seven people have killed 22. Per capita, that's higher than the combined homicide rate of Detroit, D.C., and Los Angeles. This town is not any of those places. In Franklin, you'll never have to pull off the road to make way for a celebrity driving with a gun to his head. In each incident, the suspect was killed? Suicide, by cop. Each incident occurred in a public place. The suspect went crazy and refused to desist when ordered. Officers used deadly force in order to save lives. Were autopsies conducted on the suspects for substance abuse? Agent Mulder, this town is mainly made up of apple and cherry growers. These folks don't drink much. They certainly don't do drugs. So this episode is unusual. Uh, one, one, like I have, you know, uh, have a couple of thoughts about it because you know I'm sitting there and the way it starts the whole setup is kind of atypical it doesn't really feel you know it just it's just a strange kind of setup it's very intriguing but you know we've got JF Sebastian working the post office uh, and so my question to you is this is this an X-File I mean that does this feel like an X-File isn't this kind of weird for an X-File to have something that is it starts very atypically for an X-Files episode. I don't know if, uh, if you get what I'm talking about. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an odd one, and it kind of slowly builds as it goes. And then mm-hmm. even as you get on into the episode, of course, with our... Uh, it's William Sanderson's the actor, right? 
Yes, that's right. William Sanderson is his name. Uh, I just call him J.F. Sebastian. But, yeah. Usually, you would have an opening like that with the character, and if they made it out alive, they would immediately run into Mulder and or Scully after the credits ran. And in this one, they really don't have any contact until the end. You've got two separate storylines running the entire episode, which almost never happens. And also, the storyline is very... I mean, it's a techno thriller, mm-hmm. in a sense. It's a it's a paranoia techno thriller that is drawing from very disturbing real-life concepts. And I get the sense that they wanted to do that. You know, they want... Um, I, I was looking into behind the scenes. I think Chris Carter wanted to do something that had to do with digital readouts. <laughs> whatever, whatever that means, Chris Carter. Uh, and then... And someone else had like a... Uh, an idea that maybe they could do something that had to do with the post office or with like with postal workers. They they wanted to do something about that, and I mean this throws a whole bunch of stuff in there, um, and apparently Darren Morgan, right, uh, who in the previous episode appeared as the monster, now graduated to actually being a, a writer on the series, and he actually came up with a basic maybe I guess a concept for the story. Because apparently he has that fear of blood, like he actually has that phobia, whatever oh, yeah. it's called. Uh, it's like like hematophobia or something like a, something a, like that. Yeah. Yeah. So like it's an actual it exists. This phobia exists, and Darren Morgan apparently suffers from it, and so he had the that he had that idea. You know, what if you have this guy who's who has that you know that phobia, and it all is kind of just this weird cocktail that mixes the concept of like sleeper assassins and paranoia. And although it's entertaining, you know, like, I mean, it's intriguing and there are moments that are genuinely chilling and disturbing because they draw on real things, you know, very explicitly. I mean, the, the entire climax is very obviously inspired by the 1966 a massacre at the University of Texas. Yeah, Charles uh, Whitman. <laughs> yep, yeah, exactly. So, like, that's it. And just in general, certain things that were going on at the time, you know, and or just were on people's minds, senseless killing and whatnot. And so all this stuff sort of combines into an episode that I feel is intriguing, but I'm not sure to what degree it entirely holds together. I mean, I think it has a lot of really good scenes, and I think it keeps you watching, but I don't know to what degree it's satisfying, because one thing, one big problem I have with it is that I don't get it. Like, I get that the pesticides, uh, uh, what was it, uh, LSDM? Yeah. Right? That's the pesticides. I get that these are toxic pesticides that they've unleashed in this area, and this t- this is a small town, it's like a... You know, it's a small community. They've unleashed uh, these pesticides there. And so these pesticides have affected a certain number of people. Yeah. In this very specific way. It it enhances their deepest fears. But it seems as though it's been weaponized by some unseen group. You know, you have that little... Mulder gets infected at one point, and then at the end he has the little readout, and it says, all done. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, like it was clearly coordinated, but we never get 
Exactly. I mean, you can kind of guess why it, it would be like a test. Like, obviously, if this worked, you would spray it on an enemy army out in the middle of the desert somewhere, and they'd all kill each other, and then you wouldn't have to worry about them anymore. Sure. But you never really get into any insight into exactly who was doing this. And it's the kind of episode where if it would have happened last season, Deep Throat would have come in at the end to tell Mulder what the fuck was going on. Exactly. That's the thing. I think that this episode is missing that element. It's missing Deep Throat. Mm-hmm. Um, in place of Deep Throat, we've got the lone gunmen. Yeah, but they're who, nuts. <laughs> yeah, they're nuts. And it's like, and it seems like they just stuck them in there because they... Because they didn't have Deep Throat, because they were like, well, I mean, we killed off Deep Throat, so shit. Uh, okay, what about what about the lone gunman? Okay, fine. But they don't contribute anything. I mean, well, I mean, I guess I guess they they put Mulder onto the whole concept of uh, LSDM, right? I mean, they yeah. they put they put him onto the concept of what what that could be, and like they, um, and I, and I can't get over, you know, it's like that that one guy, uh, the 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 one that's uh, got a crush on Scully. Yeah. I know. I, I know he's supposed to be funny, but it's just like he's still coming off as creepy. It's just it's oh, not. Yeah. It's, I'm just going, like this guy's a fucking creep. Uh, Mulder even calls on him, calls him one, and he says he gives perverts a bad name. And my 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 favorite transition in the entire episode is when he asks him if he can borrow his night vision goggles, and he says, "Sure, if you give me Scully's number." And then in the very next scene, you see Mulder, and then he raises him up in the frame, and he's like. <laughs> Did he actually do it? <laughs> yeah, oh my I'm God. sure he gave him the wrong number, but still. Yeah, no, yeah, I, mean, I think that Mulder respects uh, <laughs> Scully enough not to not to do that. Um, I mean, they're they're fun characters, you know. They brought them back, uh, and they use them well. It's it's a fun way to give some exposition, but I'm still having a hard time. So so yeah, so it's been weaponized in a way uh, that. So all that stuff, the readouts, that's real. Like somehow this this unseen, whatever you know, uh, someone we're not, we don't know who it is or why or, or whatever. Uh, have they've actually weaponized it in the sense like they can send subliminal messages to like Ashland Gears microwave. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, I I find that really far fetched. For you know, for a series that is always trying to ground things within a kind of believable reality, but this is just a little bit too. It just feels like they had the idea of telling the story, mm-hmm. but the the scope at which the story is told, because it would be one thing if it's a specific test group, like if the story were about let's say a, you know, like a focus group, like they'd actually picked a handful of people, you know that they had specifically targeted and they had somehow drugged those people directly, either through a drug test or in some way they had actually specifically drugged them and then, you know, programmed their microwaves and their cell phones and their whatevers. But this is implying that this, uh, this pesticide was spread over the entire population. Mm-hmm. And these particular people who happened to have specific fears and specific paranoia they are affected how like how does this unseen entity know to like send a subliminal message and a very specific subliminal message to ashling gears microwave or to like uh you know to william sanderson's 
wristwatch. Uh, I don't get it. Once I thought on this episode after I watched it earlier today, it reminded me of two specific authors. The first one is Michael Crichton. Now, if Michael Crichton wrote this, he would have done exactly what you said. It wouldn't have been the whole town that was affected. It would have been specific targets meant to take out everyone else. Because I think what that one at the beginning, it says, not not uh, William Sanderson, but the one that happened after it, the guy took out like 22 people. The elevator, right? The, the, the guy at the yeah. elevator. Yeah, so, I mean, that was pretty effective <laughs> right there. But if it was Crichton, it would have been targeted. But what this makes me think of is... Dean Koontz trying to write a Michael Crichton novel. So it's a little <laughs> bit more ridiculous, and it makes a whole lot less sense. <laughs> okay, yeah, you know what? You're, I'm, I'm going to follow your logic. You're right. It feels like a Dean Koontz story. It feels like a Dean Koontz story, because Dean Koontz, he has this thing. I mean, I haven't read um, any of his like latest stuff, but I'm yeah, pretty sure he, he's still maintaining a similar line. But what I what, what's always interesting about Dean Koontz is that he always presents something that seems supernatural, but then eventually has some kind of a really often rather half-baked or just really like far-fetched scientific explanation. And a so, government conspiracy usually. <laughs> yes, or, or some kind of corporate conspiracy. Yeah. And so like it's always something that, yeah, this looked like it, it seems supernatural, but in the end it isn't. And so you got it. I mean, like, I think that in this particular case, this does feel very much like a Dean Koontz story. But I think even Dean Koontz would have at least streamlined the concept somewhat. Probably. I mean, you know, much like what you were saying about Craig, I mean, he would have at least, you know, you would have had J.F. Sebastian and you would have had Ashlyn Gear and you would have had the guy in the elevator. Like, they all would have been part of something specific. And there would have been a connection between, you know, there would have been a connection between them, and we would have had a villain. We would have had, you know, uh, one uh, somebody who's doing this, whether it's the guy, the because like they seem to want to suggest until we realize that that's not the case, that it's that guy that they talk to. I mean, who is he? Was he the mayor? Like, uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, or the equivalent of him. He'd be the villain in the Dean Koontz version of the story, I think. He'd turn out to be the villain, Probably. and that he, he's actually in cahoots with whatever shady um, government organization or black ops organization is planning this, and so he's actually sort of working with them, and he picked out these specific people and whatever. I just, I, I just think that that's why the episode sort of falls apart, because everything about it is intriguing, but the deeper you get into it, it starts to become more and more more and more what the fuck because i'm i'm hooked like it starts the opening scene is is very intriguing you know guy cuts himself you wonder what you're watching and then all of a sudden he starts seeing like the the subliminal messages on the on the sorting machine readout and then you go okay what is this like that already clues you in that you're not gonna you're not watching a typical episode of of the x-files yeah and then, you know, the story builds, but I think at one point it just starts to fall apart. And I think the point where it falls apart is where you realize, oh, okay, this is because of the pesticides. Yeah. That's where I go like, really? It's random? Like, come on. I can't wrap my head around it being random. And, <laughs> and why, like, and why in this town? Okay, so it's random and it's only affected these three, four people? I think, I think it would have been a little bit more interesting if it were targeted and it would have made uh, Sanderson's character even more interesting because 
he's the anomaly. He's someone who is so terrified of blood that even when everything around him is telling him to kill people, he won't do it because he knows it will make a mess and he won't be able to handle it. <laughs> so he just runs around crazy the entire time. Or what if it were like a small town where everybody's fucking nuts except William Sanderson? Like, like yeah. William Sanderson's the only one who's not who's managing to, to like fight it because of what you're saying. Right. And so everybody but everybody else is just like left and right. People are just going crazy. And like like if it were something like that, that would also make sense. Like if you had a more if it were more widespread and then you have like this, you know, Mulder and Scully go into this town to investigate why everybody's just killing each other for no reason. You know, and so that would also be interesting. But in sort of having it both ways, sort of like reducing the scope, but also having it just be this really far fetched concept. But that's where I think it all starts to fall apart. And and it's unfortunate because the episode itself is well done. It's like, it's an engaging episode. William Sanderson's great. Oh, yeah. I mean, his, his performance is, is fucking fantastic. I mean, uh, he really creates this portrait of a guy who's falling apart before your very eyes. He's got that scene in the bus where he just starts going nuts. <laughs> <laughs> That's an amazing scene. That's an amazing scene. Yeah, and then he's utterly losing it in the tower at the end. Yeah, and so like it has all this great stuff, but it just it, it's unfortunate that it doesn't really hold together the way that it should. But one thought that I had, because I, again, this is not a a show that I ever delved into deeply, just as with the X Files, but like this episode, because of the way it is, because it starts with a guy kind of going nuts, and and I'm, it felt more like a Millennium episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it got me thinking. Like, how much, how soon from now? I mean, do you do you recall like about when into the X Files run did Millennium come out? I'm wanting to say ninety five, ninety six. Um, okay, so like season three or four of X Files. Yeah, somewhere around somewhere around that point. Okay, so it's not. It didn't come out like right now. It's we've still got another season or maybe two to go before Millennium gets spun off it. Fall of 96. Okay, there you go. So it would be... Two more years. Yeah, two more two more seasons from now. So around season four of X-Files. But I wonder if it's because of things like this, because there were times when they sort of wanted to tell a creepy but more grounded story that didn't really have anything to do with the paranormal that was just about, you know, some psycho just snapping or... Or, you know, like, just something a little bit more, just not supernatural in any way. You know, just sort of a more grounded kind of thing. And because they realized that maybe it was too grounded for the X-Files, maybe that's why they had the idea, well, why don't we make another show, which is about, you know, serial killers. And I, I wonder, I mean, I would think that episodes like this are, are what turned out to be the... Um, the sort of genesis for what eventually became Millennium. Yeah. I can I, think of a couple more that we'll get to on down the line, at least one more this season, that kind of fits that paradigm. And obviously some of them work within the confines of the X-Files more than others do. But yeah, there's, there's going to be a couple that we come across that really feel like precursors to Millennium. Okay, yeah. Because it, it seems to me that that's, that that's the reason Millennium was created. That it was because... Uh, there were certain types of stories that they wanted to delve into 
and they realized that they just weren't quite right for the X-Files. And so at a time like this, when, when that still wasn't in the picture, you know, they would come up with some stories like this that aren't quite X-Files, but they have a few elements that maybe they can work. So they, they put them in there and then they sort of shoehorn it and try to give it some kind of an angle that makes it, that makes it work for the X-Files. And so that's, uh, that's what I think. Something else that I found interesting, though, is that this aired in the fall of 94. And it features not only, I mean, it features references to O.J. Simpson. You know, it features very clear references. Uh, there, there's a, I think there's something in the dialogue that makes an allusion to it, something yeah. in the dialogue uh, to it. But then also there's an actual visual reference when, um, when William Sanderson's at the, at the shopping mall, I guess, or at the, mm -hmm. wherever he, at the, uh, at the department store that also sells guns. Uh, I, I mean, like Walmart. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. At least until now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So like, so, so I guess he's at Walmart and, and, you know, and when he's looking at the TVs, you know, you, it's all these flashes that are coming. You know, you've got, you know, uh, Charles Manson and the Bronco, the Bronco. And, and I'm thinking that to me, I, I found that very unusual because I do, as far as I understand it, I mean, TV shows, uh, they, that now and, and even then were not produced, they were produced relatively far in advance of when they were going to air. I mean, like uh, at least at least your first batch of episodes, you would have been producing it throughout the summer and maybe even earlier than that for what would air in the fall. And this is the third episode of the season. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I guess that stuff wasn't in the script. I mean, I'm guessing that that uh, it was written a certain way, but then when they were shooting it or when they were editing it or whatever, they they figured, well, you know, this. Uh, this whole O.J. Simpson thing is pretty topical. We should throw something in there. You know, that, that's that's kind of the, the thought I had. I thought it was very strange to see such a direct reference so soon after the fact because yeah. I'm not even sure if the trial was was underway yet. I mean, I think... I, I'm not really sure how that... I, I don't remember the time frame exactly. I do know that it's what everybody was talking about back then. I mean, I... Although I was living here, I, I was in the US in the summer of 94 because I went to see the World Cup and did some vacationing there. So I happened to actually be in the States when that happened, when the news broke about OJ. Like I, I watched the Bronco chase on live TV. You know, like I, I remember that summer vividly, but I also remember that the trial wasn't right then. I mean, I think it happened yeah. a little later. It, it wasn't yeah, like- I think that right. took a while before that really got going. So I just thought it was odd that they that they would throw that in there. And nah, I, I don't know if you had any thoughts about that. Um, not particularly. I, it, I, I guess it literally had to, I'm guessing it was added in editing uh, late in the game, before, right when they were finishing the episode. That's the only thing I can think of. Because normally I might say, well, maybe this was initially produced to be a slightly later episode in the season, and then they ramped it up. And that's why it's in there but given without spoiling anything given what happens in the next stretch that we're about to enter into there's no possible way that would have been the case yeah i mean uh, i can i can only imagine there, there are a couple of things that that were also on my mind uh while watching the episode and that's that i mean scully's barely in this mm -hmm. she's 
She's barely in this. And I do know, and, and I, I talked about this in, in the previous episode with Clay, but, but I do know that at this time, uh, Gillian Anderson was pregnant. Mm-hmm. And so I do understand that they were, they had to deal with that. They had to deal with that in a way that, I mean, they couldn't make the character get pregnant on the show. You know, I mean, they, they had to sort of figure out how to work around the reality of Gillian Anderson becoming pregnant, which, you know, she has every right to do, you know, yeah. she has every right, every right to do that. There's no, there's absolutely no problem with that. But what I'm saying is that from the, from the standpoint of being the showrunner and your lead actress gets pregnant and the structure and narrative of your television series does not really allow for that. Or maybe it does, but you have to figure out what to do. And it's not something that you can just do, you know? So, Without spoiling, I mean, I, 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 I can imagine that they do figure out a way to work around that. But I do think, based on watching this episode, and I mean, because it, it's like two things. It's either the way they shoot uh, Gillian Anderson's one or two scenes. It's always, you know, from the waist up yeah. or even, even above that. It's always, you know, tight close-ups of her face. And just, you know, they're sort of trying their best to conceal the reality of it. And... I can imagine that there's going to be, and again, it's almost an automatic spoiler, that uh, there are going to be a handful of episodes in which she's just not going to appear at all. And so they're going to have to, yeah, and they're going to have to like figure out a narrative reason for that. And they do. So I just go like, all right, you know, so they have to figure out a way to like make it work for the storyline. Um, that the fact that Julie Anderson was pregnant and obviously could not participate to the extent that they would have wanted her to under normal circumstances. And so I think this is one of those situations where like they just had her come in for like a day, mm-hmm. you know, and shoot a couple of scenes and that's it. She's barely in the episode. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's just, I, I just found that, you know, interesting. We're almost at the point now where they take care of that narratively. So you're not going to have an entire or even half a season dancing around that. Like it's going to get taken care of real soon here but on the flip side because that's an issue you end up with Mulder running around with a specific deputy for the entirety of the episode Mm -hmm. and they kind of work together pretty well I especially like the bit where uh the deputy makes a crack about uh right fielders and then he goes on with his conversation about stuff and Mulder is just fixating on it he's like you have to have a strong arm to play right field I've played right field (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's actually great. I, w- I was going to bring that scene up. I really liked that scene. I thought it was very yeah. interesting. And I thought it was very like, um, I just thought it was a really intriguing scene. I like really witty and well handled because while the guy's just going on and on about it, yeah, Mulder's just muttering to himself as he like is doing the job of like forensically examining the crime scene. He's kind of <laughs> muttering to himself and he's almost like offended by the comment yeah. that, that this deputy made. You know, uh, to imply that it was somehow a lesser baseball position. What what do they say about like you're you're the what is it like you're the you're the first one? Was it the first one or the last one to shake everybody's hand? And yeah, yeah, M- Mulder is um is very offended by that. And I thought also in previous episodes you've talked that that Mulder has a porn addiction, mm-hmm. which to be fair has not really been touched upon in any real way yet. Uh, I imagine at some point they're going to start to talk about it, but they do make, he does make a kind of joke at his own expense. 
you know, when when the when the lone gunman, um, like, oh, you haven't read the latest issue, whatever, and and he's, oh, I I, I guess it it arrived on the same day as my my latest uh, issue of Celebrity Skin or whatever it is that he, <laughs> and so I'm going like, okay, so they're already starting to uh, to touch on that, and I do think it was also, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm probably reaching where I where, when I go that with this, but you know, this this episode does feature a, a porn actress. Mm-hmm. The aforementioned Ashlyn Gear is the the unfortunate uh, woman with the with the rape paranoia that that murders the, the the mechanic, right? And so I was one. I'm I'm thinking maybe that was sort of a like a little bit of an in joke. It might have been. I, I was thinking about that, too, and I have a couple thoughts on that. Um, as far as Mulder's porn addiction, and then, of course, obviously, Duchovny's sex addiction in real life, which was, again, parodied in Californication, the other big yes. series he did after this. But um, usually with the porn stuff, I, I guess I had misremembered them tackling it early on, but generally, you're going to get little bits like that. Like, it's just going to be some joke or some random thing that's laying around the office or his apartment and just, like, peppered throughout. But, yeah, with the Ashlyn Gear thing, you know, I'd automatically want to lean, in, lean into maybe that was Duchovny's suggestion. But then when I was looking into it, I, I wasn't quite as sure for the simple fact that, you know, she's in this episode of The X-Files, and then she would go on to do two episodes of Millennium, and then an episode or two of Morgan and Wong's uh, short-lived sci-fi show, Space Above and Beyond. And she also had roles in uh, James Wong's The One, the Jet Li and Jason Statham movie, and the uh, Willard remake that Glenn Morgan directed. So hmm. whether or not they were the ones that brought her in or if it was Duchovny, apparently they really took a liking to her and just kept working with her for at least a decade after yeah, well, that's actually a very good uh, a, a very good point because I didn't know any of that. Um, I just thought it was kind of, you know, uh, funny and, <laughs> and 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 now you like you're bringing it up and it didn't occur to me. But you're right. I mean, it's now common knowledge. It might not have been then, but it's now right. kind of common pop culture behind the scenes knowledge, at least for some people, that David Duchovny in fact has a sex addiction. He is a sex addict or maybe a porn addict or like whatever, but the point is he does have, he does have this, um, this issue. Uh, he's, I guess he's been open about it at some point. With yeah. An I think he's gone to rehab a couple of times and then opened up about it after that. Yeah. So, um, I guess putting that in the X-Files is deliberate. It's just a, it's a, it's a nod to a real thing. And what I would ask, what I would ask then is like, I, I mean, I'm guessing that came from him, because if, if, it came, if it came from other people, that seems to me to be very insensitive. But yeah. if it's him, you know, as a person, you know, here's a good way for me to deal with this issue that I have if I just make it part of my character. So I'll just like I'll be open about that. it. You know, I was like, I'll just be open. You know, guys, I've got this issue. And so maybe it would be cool if we kind of have Mulder also have that issue. And so that way you know, it, it can help the character and it can help me deal with it and process it and all that stuff. And so they go, okay, sure. You know, and then, and then it's like, oh, okay. So you want to have Ashlyn gear on the show. Okay. Well, it's all this stuff that is just like, oh, all right. Well, you really want to work with Ashlyn gear. Don't you, you, 
really want to have that nice. You want to have a whole action scene involving Ashlyn Gear. It's not something that I had that had a, occurred to me, but yeah, if it's if it's part of his reality as an actor, for him to then integrate it into the show, I guess it's just his way of working working things out for himself, and I can respect that. I wouldn't put it past him, and you know, thinking about that in hindsight, it it makes the I wouldn't be too surprised if the celebrity skin line was an ad lib and if any of the other things that end up being peppered throughout the series were all on him as well. Like I could he's the type of person that I can see him doing that. Yeah, the, I, I think so. I think so. But back to the episode as a whole, I think that that's ultimately the problem that I had with it. That's what it boils down to. While watching it, it was entertaining, but then eventually it falls apart and it never really comes together. Yeah. And, you know, like, it's got a great climax. It's very dramatic. You know, the, the, the chase up to the, um, to the tower, you know, and, like, just that whole sequence is... It's dramatic. It's chilling because it's drawn from reality. Um, there is an element, the randomness of the killing, the fact that it, it's, it's people who can just snap at any time. I think that these things are... They work because we are aware of that. We, we hear about these things, you know, uh, all the time, whether it's uh, the, the mass shootings that happen uh, on, on a all too regular basis in the U.S. or just mm -hmm. any sort of senseless killing that you hear about anywhere. And throughout history, it's always this random thing of someone that snaps and just does something unimaginable. And so for that reason, yeah, the episode is kind of like, disturbing and scary in a certain way and unfortunately because they also felt the need to tie it to this sort of weird conspiracy like techno thriller thing i think that that actually detracted from the episode mm -hmm. you know like if it had just been william sanderson you know if it had just been william sanderson who snaps and starts to imagine that he sees these messages, but it's just because he's crazy. And so he, he, he goes on a killing spree. Wouldn't have been very X-Files-like. It, it, would, it would have been out of place in X-Files, but I think it would have worked better as a story because ultimately like that's the best thing about it. Like everything that's, mm -hmm. that is, is like uh, revolving around the William Sanderson character is the most compelling thing in the episode. He's yeah, the, the character you're following. He's like, it's dramatic. He's struggling. You know, he sees, he keeps seeing the messages and it's like, he's going to snap. He's going to snap. He's going to snap. And so, and, and that's why, like, if it's true that it's like Darren Morgan has that, that phobia. And he said, what about a guy who's like terrified of blood and whatever? And so maybe it was this thing where Darren Morgan came to them with a story and they were like, yeah, but how do we make that an X-Files episode? I mean, it's, you're, you're, you're giving us a story about a psycho, you know, and that's cool, but I don't know if it works. And that's where they go, well, what if it were pesticides? <laughs> but then that's it. When you do that, that's when it all falls apart. Yeah. And so it's sort of like the problem with the episode is that it forces itself to be an X-Files episode when maybe it shouldn't be an X-Files episode. And as a story, it would have just worked fine if it were not an X-Files episode. I agree. It's, it's an episode where the parts are greater than the sum. You know, individual yeah. sequences are great. Certain arcs are better than others, but it never it never fully gels together like it should.
Yeah, and uh, you were reminded of like Michael Crichton, Dean Koontz, but I couldn't help it. I mean, obviously, uh, I think anybody, um, you know, when he's at the ATM, <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, this is Maximum Overdrive, like, or American like, Psycho. <laughs> yeah, or American Psycho. You know, so hey, the the bank teller machine just called me an asshole. You know, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I I think that that that's that's how we can sum it up. I think we both summed it up well. It's that was well said. The the parts are greater than the sum. I'd love to tell you that I flew 300 miles in the middle of the night to perform tests that prove that you are about to become the next Charles Manson. But I find little physiological evidence that states that LSDM has toxically affected you, even after massive ingestion. Scully, your own autopsy reported the killer had chemical anomalies. Yes, but you are proof that it wasn't from exposure to LSDM. Are you familiar with subliminal messages? You mean like sex and ice cubes and liquor ads? That's paranoia. No, it's a fact that some department stores use subliminal messages in their ambient music to deter shoplifting. And the Russians have been using advanced electroencephalographic techniques to control behavior. And how is this connected with the spraying? Electronic devices were destroyed by every perpetrator. I'm still waiting. The insecticide LSDM is known to invoke a fear response in cluster flies. What if the chemical causes the same reaction in humans? All the perpetrators were phobic. Tabor was claustrophobic. McRoberts' husband stated she had a paranoia about rape. The insecticide heightened their already existent phobia to an unbearable level. Then the electronic devices relayed messages that told them specifically what to do with their fear in order to alleviate it. The messages were relayed purposely. By who? that is that. I hope you enjoyed our discussion. And if you did enjoy it, there are many ways you can support the podcast, which is available on Anchor FM, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other platforms. You can subscribe. You can rate and or review it depending on what platform you're enjoying it on. And of course, you can share and spread the word on social media. Please do any or all of these things. Every little bit helps. Look for the Eric's Antoine Network on Facebook or on YouTube. You can also follow me on Twitter at Eric's Antoine Net and check out my film reviews on Letterboxd. You should also check out Daniel Baldwin's website, theschlocketeer.com, and follow him on Twitter at Daniel W. Baldwin. I'm Eric's Antoine, and I'll be back in a few days when Daniel and I will be discussing Sleepless. Sleepless in Vancouver, standing in for New York as it so often does. I hope you'll join us. And until then, please remember that the truth is out there. See you next time. Pardon me. Wait for the next stop. Please, I'm on the wrong bus. Wait for the next stop. On the door! Ah!